Even in Jesus' day, people had a wide variety of theories about who Jesus was. Jesus once asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some said he was John the Baptist, come back from the grave. Others said that he was Elijah or maybe one of the other prophets. And the theories about Jesus have not stopped since. For many who acknowledge a historical Jesus' existence, he is often considered a good, wise influencer on par with Gandhi, whose teachings called for peace and harmony. Others see him as nothing more than a man who has become the mascot of a movement, someone who has been over-mythologized to divine proportions. And if you think all that confusion's all outside the church, and those are all just bigwig German theologians coming up with those theories, let's just think about how it's come into the church. In 2022, Ligonier Ministries released what they call the State of Theology. It's a biannual survey, survey that comes out you know, it's every other year. Uh, intended to check the status of professing believers in America and what they believe on key doctrines. When given the proposition, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, 43% of respondents said they agreed with that statement. When asked about the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Ready for this? An astounding 55% said they agreed. Now, if you think, well, those are like, maybe they're polling Jehovah's Witness. No, these are people who would call themselves evangelicals. These are the same group of people that respond, 68% of them responded that they believed that every Christian has an obligation to be in and join a church. Out of all the people answering this, doctor, this uh, questionnaire back 55% thinking that Jesus was the first created man, 43% thinking he was a great teacher, really good guy, but not God. So that said, who is Jesus? Maybe you're here and you would squirm at that question and just not sure, be not sure how to answer that question. How should we, as gospel-centered Christians, understand his person and work? That's why we study the hymn in Colossians 1 the hymn known as the Christ hymn. It provides one of the most succinct statements of faith when it comes to who Jesus really is. It reminds us that he is not a mere man. So he's not just a flesh and bone person like me, you, or Gandhi. He is not a mere man. In fact, it is inaccurate to even call him a creature or to think that he belongs in creation because he was never created. He's not a mere teacher or even a mere cultural influencer, some pre-modern TikTok influencer that we've all continued to listen to. As Colossians shows, Jesus is the creator himself, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the redeemer of the whole world. And because of who he is, we have a joyful obligation to remain steadfast and stable in our faith in him. Now, if we're tracking Paul's message closely, we started Colossians last week. It's worth asking why Paul thought this was a good place to insert this Christ hymn. 
So far in Colossians, Paul has greeted the brothers in Colossae. He's thanked God for what God has already done in them and has asked that God would fill them with knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that they could uh, walk worthy and in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And one aspect of that worthy life was that they would give thanks to the Father. And why should they give thanks for, uh, to the Father? Well, for two reasons in particular. Number one, because the Father had qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints. But then number two, he has delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son. As Paul explains, it is because of what God has done through his son that we have redemption, which he defines as the forgiveness of sins, which means every pornographic thought that you've ever had, every greedy moment, every lust, every uh, moment that you've gossiped, all of that forgiven in Christ. You have redemption and restoration is offered in him. Now, Paul's singular goal in writing is to inspire the Colossians and you as readers to give thanks and to praise this Jesus, as he is, not the Jesus that we come up with in our minds, but the Jesus who really is, the Jesus who really lives, the Jesus who really reigns on high. He, he wants to bring them to thanksgiving and praise. And so it, it seems like a perfect opportunity to tell them, yeah, Jesus is the one. Uh, it's because of Jesus that you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And in this moment of trying to inspire his readers to praise, Paul himself seems to outbreak in praise. He mentions the beloved son, and next thing you know, you, you have this hymn that just flows from him. Now, I, I don't know if he wrote the hymn. It seems like the hymn was already in existence in the church by the time Paul was writing, and that this might have been a well-known hymn that he took and inserted into the letter of Colossians. Either way, Paul begins singing through his pen to the beloved son, reminding us who he is, reminding us of what he's done. So the whole point of this text is to inspire your fascination, your awe, your thanksgiving, your praise of the beloved son through whom you have redemption. And so the only, the only appropriate response today is just that. Praise and adoration for who Jesus is. The reason we get Jesus wrong so much is because we don't adore him enough. The reason we get Jesus wrong so much is because we don't think about what he's done enough. So we think about what he's done, we adore him, and that leads us into orthodox, gospel-centered theology about who he is. If you look at the hymn carefully, it can be broken up into three basic sections, which by itself, the, just the way the song is structured is amazing. Three basic sections. The first declaring Jesus as creator and king of creation. The second, which is the middle focal point of the fact that all things currently at this moment find their being in him. He has supremacy in both the world and in the church. And then the third section, proclaiming Jesus as the king of redemption, new creation. So there's a couple ways to think about this. The hymn praises Jesus, who is preeminent and supreme in the past creation, in the present, in the world and in the church, and in the future, when all things are made new. You know what that tells us? There's never been a moment that Christ has not been supreme. 
We're not waiting for Christ to become preeminent. We're engaging in a story that's already happening. His preeminence is old news. He's been preeminent from the moment it said, let there be light. And then he's preeminent right now in every event that's happening in the world. In every event that's happening in this church. And then he's preeminent in the world to come. There's never, ever, ever been a moment that Christ was not the eternal king. You realize when we say eternal king, when we say Jesus is the eternal king, we praise God for his eternality. We're not just thinking forward like forever in the future. We're also thinking forward backwards as if there's no beginning. Jesus has always been the king. Jesus has always been supreme, never had a beginning, and his dominion will have no end. He's been preeminent through it all. Another way you can think about it, it's not just past, present, future, but also in his work, in his titles. Jesus the creator. Jesus the sustainer. Jesus the redeemer. Now, just that, those titles alone, that's just, this hymn is just basking in the glory of who he is, expecting you to join in the party of praising and worshiping him, the creator, sustainer, the redeemer, all in hope that you will be brought to all in adoration of who Jesus is and what he's done in the world. So let's look at that first one. Jesus, the creator. Having mentioned the beloved son, Paul begins describing him with the highest praise. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And get this, just in case you didn't catch all that, all things were created through and for him. Now in this little section, again, we see Christ supreme for who he is and what he's done. First, who is he? He is the image of the invisible God. I just want to be clear about this. Paul is not saying, this hymn is not saying that Jesus is an image bearer like you and I. It is one thing to be made in the image of God and another thing to be the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. You are in the image of God. Those two things are drastically different. Jesus was not created in the image of God. He is the image of God. And we're created in his image. He is the image in which we were made. He's the image of God. You and I are image bearers created in the glorious image of God, which means that when people see us, there should be attributes, there should be aspects in which they are reminded of God. Do you understand that Jesus doesn't just remind us about God? He reveals God. He is God. It's not just that there's a parallel of, hmm, I see Jesus and that just kind of, that brings, that reminds me, it echoes things about God. No, no, no. He is God who is revealing God to you. That's what it means for him to be the image. In him, just think of the image of God. What is true about God? God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. God is self-existent. God is eternal, which doesn't mean he's just gonna live forever. It also means he had no beginning, right? So eternal means no time. There's no beginning and no end. And he's immutable, which means he never 
changes. He stays the same forever, right? So long before the stars were singing in the sky, long before the sun rose, God was exactly as he is now. All of that is true about Jesus. The omnipotent Lord, he is the image of God. This is why Jesus could tell Philip, whoever has seen me has seen what? The Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus could say that. I can't see that, say that. That's blasphemy. If I say, yeah, if you look at me, you see the Father. That's blasphemy. That's heretical. Jesus could say it and it'd be absolutely true. You see Jesus, you've seen the Father. You see Jesus, you see every attribute of God in flesh. He took on flesh. Athanasius explains that the revelation of God was one of the primary reasons that the incarnation was necessary. Jesus took on flesh in order that since human beings were not able to know God in the whole, they should not fail to know him in part. And since they were not able to lift up their gaze to his invisible power, they might be able at any rate to know and contemplate him from things similar. Being human, they were able to know the Father more speedily and directly by a body corresponding to theirs and the divining works affected through it. Let me just summarize all that for those of you that was like, well, that was way over my head. As the image of God, Jesus took on flesh so that, as 1 John 1 says, you could see, look upon, touch with your hands, God himself. Jesus took on flesh so that you could know God because there is no way for you to know God without that. You cannot comprehend the invisible, incomprehensible God. So God took on flesh so that you could know the incomprehensible God. That just blows my mind about who Jesus is. Every attribute. Now there's, there's some, we call them communicable attributes, right? That we share with God, like God is love and we can be loving, right? So there's an element in which our love somewhat imperfectly models God's love. There's other communicable attributes, right? Like mercy and justice and different things like that. God is just and we can reflect his justice to some extent, though not, again, not perfectly or definitively. But none of us can be omniscient. None of us can be omnipotent. None of us certainly can be omnipresent. Some of you are barely here this morning. None of us are eternal. We all have birth dates and we have death dates. We both had manufacturing dates and expiration dates. That's all of us. None of us are self-existing, right? Which means that we don't just depend on ourselves to have life. God is self-existing. Jesus is self-existing. This is, this is a way, you, when you think about Jesus by making a one-to-one -one correspondence between you and him, there's just no way to make that parallel. Jesus is God in flesh, not just a man. God in flesh, the image of God. Still more, he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, typically, when we read firstborn throughout uh, the generations, people have tried to interpret this as like the first made, right? Like they're thinking of firstborn, like Timothy's my firstborn, Abigail was secondborn. Um, but that's not what firstborn means in the time that this is being written. Firstborn is not chronological, as in first, second, third. Firstborn is positional, as in status. 
Uh, you see this in Psalm 89, 27. When God promises to make the Davidic king the firstborn, and what he means by that, he goes on to explain what that means. What does it mean the firstborn of all the kings? He says that being the firstborn of all the kings, he is the highest of kings of the earth. So firstborn is not a statement as if Jesus has the first made man. No, that's not what it means. It means he's supremely exalted. He is first over all, reigns as the highest king of the world, just in the same way that Psalm 89 just described. He does not belong in the class or category of creation. So in this creator-creation distinction, guess which side you fall on? Creation. Guess which side he falls on? Creator. And that distinction is wide and unbridgeable. Never can the creator become creation. Even in taking on flesh, Jesus didn't become a creature. He wasn't made. He was always existing, always eternal. If he could ever be made or have a start date, then he's not God. If he could ever sacrifice any one of his attributes, we'll see this here in a minute. If he ever sacrificed one of his attributes, he ceases to be God. A lot of people struggle with that. But the reality is, is this hymn is showing us the supremacy of the son's person. It praises the supremacy of who he is. And then it turns to praise his work. So he's the, he's the image of God. He's not in the image of God. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn of creation. And then it goes on to say, for by him all things were created. And then it goes on to say, for by him and through him and for him. In other words, he's the origin of creation, the means by which creations came, creation came into being, and the reason it was made. In a couple of weeks, I get to go see the Rockies again. Rockies one of my favorite places. And think that the Rockies, Long's Peak, was made by Jesus, through Jesus. Like it wouldn't exist without him. And it was made for Jesus. That's supremacy. All creation down to your annoying pet dog that yaps at night, to the red ants that come up when it rains in Texas, to the birch trees, the beech trees. What's that weird uh, plum tree that nobody likes? Bradford pear, not a plum. All of those exist, how? By, through, and for Jesus. That's amazing supremacy. And that applies to you. How are you here? How are you breathing? How is your lungs filling up with air? Well, it's only because you were made by Jesus. You have your existence right now through Jesus's own will and word. Now, let's talk about the third one. You exist for Jesus, not for yourself. Not for your individual wants, not for your rights, not for your aspirations and goals, you exist for Jesus because he's the creator of all things. In other words, the son stands supreme and at the center of everything. You know, typically when people hear that, they say amen because it's such an astounding truth, right? How often have you thought about 
The fact that the son of God is the means by which, you go back to read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at that moment, you begin hearing that voice, let there be light in a totally different way. That let there be light, the word, the logos of God working to create all things so that all things could have their existence. Guess who was there? And not just there as a witness, there as a participant, there as the creator, the person that we worship named Jesus. There as creator. So amazing, I think. Supreme in the past. Supreme before I was even thought of. Supreme before there was a Grand Canyon. Supreme before there was a Milky Way. Supreme before there was even a star shining in the sky. Supreme way, way, way back without beginning. And so it, the hymn sings that Jesus is the creator of all things, but then it moves to describe him as the sustainer of all things. He's supreme at the creation of all things, but he continues to be supreme at this moment. It says he is before all things, which I think there's an argument, is that chronologically or positionally? Is he before all things as in first place? Or is he before all things as in he existed first, before all things? Yes, both, and he's before all things. Whether he's in front of it or if he existed before it, both those things are true, right? He's before all things. And listen to this, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body and of the church. Now, let me just kind of talk about this, in him all things hold together. It, in in the, the Greek word, it, it literally means in him all things find existence find their existence. In other words, there's not one thing in this earth that would exist at this moment, including the chair you're sitting on, if the sun didn't will it to. Think about the supremacy of this in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, typically in in uh, Christian tradition, we've, we've interpreted that to mean that if Jesus didn't speak it into existence and continue letting it have its existence, it would not exist. If at this moment Jesus dropped the ball and forgot about you, you would just be like, you know, and Thanos and Avengers, spoiler alert, Thanos snaps and everybody just goes to the dust. That'd be you if Jesus stopped speaking you into existence. All things are sustained, are living, and are, are breathing and, and exists at this moment. Why? Sheerly because Jesus wills for it too. Is there any disagreement about that? I mean, this is supremacy in its greatest, sovereignty in its greatest. Do you know what that means? Are your most hateful political enemies? They exist because Jesus wants them to. That red ant hill that you step in and it stings, that exists. Why? Because Jesus wants it to. Jesus is so sovereign that if he ever decided to stop giving something in existence, it would just blow away. And one day that will happen for some things, right? Things will pass away, burn away, fade away. But at the moment, there are some things that Jesus wills to exist. Now, what about the bad things in the world that exist? What about the bad people in the world that exist? Well, Jesus is a sovereign God, and we also believe he's a good God. 
Well, if he's a sovereign God and he's a good God, then how do we explain the fact that bad things or bad people currently exist? Well, there's a couple ways you can do it. Well, he's sovereign, but he's not good. So evil things exist because he's a not good God and he's powerful and he just wants to punish us. That's option one. Option two is he's not sovereign, but he is good. And evil things exist because he's powerless to do anything about it. He doesn't want those bad things to happen. By the way, that's the approach that the shack takes, if any of you like to read the shack. Sovereign, not good, malevolent God. Not sovereign, good, powerless God. Or sovereign and good God who allows bad things to exist for his purpose. That just is mind-blowing sovereignty. Why do graveyards exist? Why do typhoons and hurricanes and mudslides and avalanches exist? Why does cancer exist? Not because he delights in them. That wouldn't be a good God, would it? But because he has a purpose in it. Because he is accomplishing something through it. It exists by his sheer will to do exactly what he wants it to. That's unfathomable sovereignty. And a great comfort, isn't it? I don't know what else to do with Jesus if he's not sovereign over all things. I mean, like I said, that's the, that's the option. Either he's, he's handcuffed, I can't do anything about it. Bad things happen, whoops. Or he can do something about it, he just doesn't want to. Well, that's not good news. The only good news is if Jesus is sovereign, powerful, and good, and then how do we reconcile bad things? Well, because this sovereign and good God has a good plan to come through it. Just like, why did slavery exist for the Israelites? Why did God, being a sovereign and a good God, allow Jacob to come to Egypt in the first place? Why, did they, why were they in Egypt for 400 years? That's bad, isn't it? And yet, by the end of the story, we see all things were working to the glory and power of God. You know what came from that 400-year stint in Exodus? You know what came as Egypt got more and more powerful and oppressed more and more people? The nation saw what the Lord did to it, and they knew that Yahweh was God. So he's sovereign over everything outside this place. He, everything outside this world is sustained by him. Outside this church, it's sustained by him. But he's also sovereign over everything in this church. That's what he means by what he says he's the head of the church. The son is sovereign over every star, over every mountain, over every beetle, over, over fire ant, and even a tumor, over sequoia trees, rivers, every single person in this room. And he's also completely sovereign over his church as the head. Now, this is why the, this is good news. He is the one who sustains your life. God's people need never fear extermination. As long as the head lives, the body need not fear die. Do you understand that? As long as the head lives, the body does not ever need to fear death. Because the head lives. Because he's the head of the church, the church will live. As long as the head lives, the body lives. If there's ever a moment the head stops living, the body's dead. 
But for us, we have a savior who died once, rose again, will never die again, and is the head of the church. And that's why we can have absolute supreme confidence that God's people will live forever. That's one of the reasons Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die, but will live. How can he say that? Well, because he's the sustainer of his people. That makes you about this small and him really big. He's the sustainer of all his people and all that goes on in the world. So we have past, supreme in creation, we have present, supreme in the world, supreme in the church. Well, what about the future? This one is the one that we all get antsy about, right? And start nail biting. What about 2024? What about after 2024? What about in the years to come? Well, we find out that the son is supreme in the future as well. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, the word beginning here, the beginning of what? Jesus is the beginning, but the beginning of what? On one level, the hymn is describing the beginning of a new age, specifically the age of resurrection is a new creational event. So what is Jesus the beginning of? Jesus is the beginning of a fresh start, of a new creation, of a new world free from death. He's the firstborn of the dead, meaning he's the first one that's effectively walked out of death's hold and defeated it, marking that there are a lot more to follow. He burst open the door. He said, follow me, everybody. Life's this way. He's the firstborn of the, he's the first, the first moment, the beginning of the resurrection age. Should remind us of Romans 14, 9 too, right? When uh, Jesus has taken on life, he died and he rose again. Why? For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So it's good news that Jesus is supreme in creation, right? And starting up all this. It's good news that he's supreme right now in the world and in the church. But it goes even better than that. He's supreme over death itself. He's, sov he's the sovereign that death must listen to, that death will eventually be defeated by. That last enemy to be defeated is death. That's what the Bible promises. Who's it defeated by? By our supreme king, Jesus He's the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead. And if that's not enough to convince you why he should have preeminence in your life in first place in both creation and new creation, the hymn continues to go even further. He deserves preeminence both because of who he is and what he has done. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven or, or, or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, earlier in this hymn, the hymn made it clear that Jesus is the image of God who reveals God to us. Now the hymn adds that all the fullness of God, all of his attributes dwells in Jesus. This means when we read things like Philippians 2 when it says he emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of his deity. You, we all understand that, right? That kenosis doesn't mean that he temporarily stopped being God. He was fully God who became fully man as well. 
It was an addition, not a subtraction. God who took on flesh, but didn't put off any of his divinity. All the fullness of God dwells in him. If any of his attributes, divine attributes, could be altered, then he wouldn't be divine. So there's at some level that we have to understand that when Jesus took on flesh, he's still fully God in all of the attributes of God. Now, this might be going a little deeper water than you were looking for this Sunday. But that's the beauty of who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man. Not half God, not, not Hercules, right? Half God, Father God, and then a human mother. Not, that's not, he's not a demigod. He's fully God, fully man at all points from here on out. And it's explicitly because of who he is, the God-man, that he was fully able and qualified to reconcile all things by making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, if I die on this stage, I have the ability to reconcile nothing, not even an anthill, to the Lord. My blood cannot be effective in redeeming creation. So why was Jesus's? Because he was the creator because he is the creator who took on flesh and the creator who took on flesh and then died to redeem all things back to himself, to reconcile and restore us back to himself. So supreme in creation, supreme right now, supreme in redemption. It takes us to the depths of Christology. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, and he's the redeemer. He's the supreme king, eternal, Past, present, and future. Now, what does all this mean for you? All this might seem like just high theology to you. But what does it mean for you? Well, Paul answers that question. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The hymn Paul quotes tells us a lot about Christ's nature, but now it tells us what's true about redemption. We, it tells us a lot about us. So if Christ is creator, sustainer, redeemer, well, what, were, what are we? What were we? Alienated, hostile in mind, and active in doing evil. That's who you were. So let's just be clear about who's who. Well, he's creator, sustainer, redeemer. You're alienated, hostile in mind, active in evil doing. Once, until he came and he redeemed you and reconciled you back to himself. Do you realize that when Jesus saved you, it wasn't just to get your name on heaven's roster? I know you might think that it's just life insurance, but it's not. Jesus's redemption of you has a goal. It has a point. Why were you saved? So that you will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. Stagnant disciples are an oxymoron. Growing disciples who are perpetually being shaped and molded back into the image of Christ is God's plan and point of redemption. Not to keep you who you were, but to continue to sanctify you and shape you and, and remake you in his image. Um, I, I love the way, again, I'm an Athanasius nerd with this. And, and if you haven't read the book On the Incarnation, some of you might find it a little dense, but 
it's, it's got amazing takeaways from it. He writes, when, when Jesus died, it was not for another, when, the, the whole point of Jesus coming and dying was, it was not for another to recreate again the, in the image for human beings except the image of the Father. In other words, since he was the image in which we were made, he's the only one who could redeem us in that image. You see, when humanity sinned, we still are made in the image of God, even as sinners, right? Every single one of us. But it's a tarnished and it's a diminished image. It's not, we're not what we were. We still have the image of God. We're still in the image of God. We're still bearers of God's image. And yet the sad reality is because of sin, we do not image God like we should. We're a, we're a, a dusty old, tarnished painting, right? And Athanasius uses that example. Back in those days before there was infrared to be able to restore paintings and whatnot, um, how did you restore a painting that got damaged? So just imagine Mona Lisa, right? And it just gets ripped to shreds. Somebody takes a knife to it and just tears it up in different places. Athanasius asks, well, who's gonna restore the painting? How is it gonna restore Back then, the only way to restore a painting, a portrait that had been so terribly damaged was to have the original subject come back and repaint it. Jesus came back to make you into his image again, which is the whole point of redemption, right? That we would, Im we would take on the image of Christ and increase in the image of Christ. That's the original intent. We're made in the image of God. This portrait of God has been damaged distorted, broken, ripped, torn. So what needed to happen? The original image had to come back so I can be remade in that image. What beauty is that? That the more we learn how to love, the more we learn how to forgive, the more we learn how to stop gossiping and being judgmental and being crotchety and all these different things, the more we learn how to be like Christ, the more we see evidence that the portrait's being restored into the original image. That's unfathomable. Just amazing work that God's doing. We're all in progress you're all dusty and torn up portraits that Jesus is currently refurbishing. And one day, he'll finish off that little portrait of himself and be like, it's done. And every single one of us will stand perfect, holy, blameless, and above reproach before the most holy, perfect, sinless God. That's the goal of your life is to see that happen every single day, to see you progress in imaging Jesus more and more and more until the day that the portrait is done. So what should you do? Well, I think first, don't be content with where you're at. Don't be content with just going, well, you know, it's just me. People know me. I get a bit cranky. No, no, no. Be discipled, be sanctified. Let the portrait work, the refurbishing of the portrait begin. Let's, let's let it get going, right? Like don't just sit there and go, well, you know, I'm just a busted up old portrait. Yes, you are. And you need to be repainted. And that can only happen with Jesus and the gospel. To be restored into his image. And secondly, I think it should give you great comfort. Jesus is not just a man. He's not even just a God who came once. He's the God-man. 
So he sits in flesh on the Father's throne. One day we will see, touch, and hear his voice. We will get to sit at a real table with Jesus, drinking kingdom wine with our flesh and blood Savior, who is God himself. Are you ready for that? Are you dreaming about that? Are you you looking forward to that? Is that what makes up the priority of your life is to make it to that moment or is is your goal to get a little richer in the meantime? Is your goal to build a little bit more comfort, a little more things? Or is Christ preeminent in your life just as he was preeminent in creation, preeminent now, and is going to be preeminent in the days to come? Does your life reflect his preeminence and priority? If not, there's a reevaluation that needs to happen and repentance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus came and died to restore us into the image of you. Father, we thank you that he is the image. He's the one that is preeminent over creation. He's the one that sustains us and he's the one that has redeemed all things to himself. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know him, that you will draw their hearts to your son, that you will draw their minds to think about his glory and supremacy and that you will inspire their hearts to adoration and awe. Father, we love you, and we just pray this in your son's name. Amen.